Good day. This is the 13th edition of the Free City Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a little bit since I posted a podcast, so I'm going to be making more of an effort to um, share this radio work uh, through the podcast medium in the next weeks. Uh, Of course, Free City Radio broadcasts locally on the radio here in Montreal every Wednesday at 11 a.m., Um, The podcast is a little bit different, and I try to share some more music and some more personal reflections. So thank you to everybody who has subscribed and downloaded so far. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, Today on the show, I wanted to start with a discussion I had with a Bulgarian writer and sociologist named Jana Tonova, who um, has been documenting and writing about the social movement in Bulgaria that has been happening over the last two months. There has been protests taking to the streets in the country to um, demand social justice and to protest state corruption. Beyond the buzzword of corruption, um, just for a little bit of context, um, because there has been protests of the Bulgarian diaspora here in Montreal over the last months and I've been going, I am part of that. Um, My father is Bulgarian Macedonian, so I felt it was important to look at this issue. Uh, There's been mass protests uh, in Sofia, in the capital of Bulgaria, but also beyond, uh, also in towns and even some villages, which is really significant. Bulgaria, of course, is the poorest country by far in the European Union. Uh, The wealth inequality is extreme, and there's a lot of problems with state corruption. Um, Jana, who is a writer, a progressive writer in Bulgaria, has been chronicling um, the protest movement for Al Jazeera English. And I felt um, it'd be good to speak with her to get a, uh, a breakdown, a critique, some ideas about what has been happening, some of the underlying issues and how the protests in Bulgaria relate to a broader understanding of movements for social and economic justice around the world uh, at the time, you know, of pandemic, but also beyond. Um, So this is our conversation. And thanks so much, Jana, for joining us on the podcast. Um, My name is Jana Tsoneva. I'm from Bulgaria. Um, I'm a sociologist based in Sofia. I recently wrote an op-ed for Al Jazeera about the um, current Bulgarian protests. They are against the 10-year-long rule of uh, the GERB government. GERB is a center-right party in coalition with far-right parties, and there have been endemic corruption scandals since almost since the beginning. Um, I highlight the kind of um, prehistory to, to, to the protests, what the protesters are uh, demanding and also offering some, um, like let's say, a different perspective on corruption and how to tackle it, alternative to what the protesters uh, demand, which basically um, is exhausted with uh, judicial reform. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, outlining that, Jana. Um, my understanding is that, in fact, yes, uh, corruption is a major focus of the protests, among many other issues. Um, in okay. terms of what you just highlighted on um, judicial reform in Bulgaria, um, can you can you 
expand a bit of the critique that you were presenting in terms of the focus on corruption um, in regards to the protests in the country? Yeah, um, so um, the protesters want um, what is habitually known as the rule of law. They say the state is too weak to persecute high-level politicians and their business allies. Uh, when uh, instances of collision are discovered. In fact, no, nobody from the big shots has been persecuted uh, in all these years. And what I say instead is that I think it would be better if we undercut, so to speak, the power of these corrupt elites from, from the foundations, which is basically money. So if, because Bulgaria is um, the poorest, and the most unequal EU member state. So the top tier, they accumulate so much money. And as we know, money is power. So if we devise economic policy, not just judicial or uh, criminal legislation, but economic policy, which is more egalitarian, more redistributive, this would undercut the power of the oligarchs more efficiently. And they won't be able to, to buy politicians in the same way as they're doing now. Because when we speak about corrupt politicians, we also need to be talking about the corrupting party. You know, to, uh, for tango, it takes two, right? So um, if, if these people don't get so rich, uh, they won't be able to, um, to buy the politicians they need. A lot of the, the street protests have really focused on the issue of corruption. We've, we've mentioned that. Um, I, I, I right. would like to explore a bit more what you're talking about. Um, but first, I did want to hear a bit about um, corruption as it affects socially disadvantaged communities in Bulgaria. Um, there is a huge discrepancy, I believe, between ur urban and rural communities, also between uh, the experiences of different uh, communities in the country, um, for example, the Roma community, um, I can imagine that corruption in terms of how that trickles down to daily experience uh, affects uh, communities that are already disadvantaged. The working class in Bulgaria is, if we can, uh, if we can define it, so it's quite marginalized and underrepresented and so on. But um, um, so, for example, um, when you go to a hospital. Even if you're insured, you have to do a lot of co-payments. This is because the healthcare system is severely underfunded because we have a very um, regressive taxation system. Basically, we have a flat tax. Bulgaria is almost like a tax haven, so the state barely collects any taxes. And all these social reproduction systems are severely underfunded. And when they are underfunded by the state, they're going to take their money from their users. So this is what happens. Like you go to a hospital, you are insured, and still you have to fork out a lot of money to get something that the state is supposed to be paying for. And this happens to literally everybody. Or uh, if you, if you um, enroll your kids to the, to the state kindergarten, it's the same, you know, the, the fee is very low, but then there are these extra fees piling up. And this used to be um, considered corruption in the past, but gradually it became legalized, all these extra fees which they're not supposed to be taking, but they have no other way to supplement their um, meager budgets. 
So this is one way where you have a weak state which does not collect taxes, doesn't redistribute. This leads to the great inequality I was mentioning uh, in answering your first question and which impacts negatively the quality of life of the majority of, of the people, not to speak about crumbling infrastructure because uh, basically every city in Bulgaria is ruled via public-private partnerships and tenders and so companies close to the ruling elites uh, get these tenders and they uh, save on costs by you know buying the cheapest materials and so on and then we have like really bad roads and uh, public infrastructure. Um, Bulgaria um, got something like 5 billion euros in the last years to to upgrade its um, sewer and water infrastructure and none of that has been uh, utilized according to what it was meant to. And so we have uh, all the time water crisis and shortages. Going back to the critique that you outlined on um, the focus on corruption, from what I understand, um, you're suggesting and underlining the urgency of addressing economic inequality and uh, the great unbalance of economic access in the country. I could see that uh, the protest movement could be co-opted by politicians with a populist message if it's played the right way. I'm wondering if you could expand on, on those ideas a bit more. Yeah, basically the um, anti-corruption discourse is really uh, the dominant way of conceptualizing what's wrong with this country. So it could be that the protest is susceptible to something like that. So um, that's why I would like to, to, to push the, the conversation in the direction of economic and even taxation reform so that these people don't get so rich and so powerful that they buy politicians. Thanks so much for pointing that out. Um, it, it links to the uh, point of the protests that have been happening around the world, uh, Bulgarians all over earth basically have been protesting in support of the demonstrations in Bulgaria. Uh, here in Montreal, mm -hmm. there's been protests too. Uh, again, the focus is very much on, on corruption. As uh, a writer, as an academic who's based in Bulgaria, um, following these, these demonstrations, how do you feel about the fact that Bulgarians around the world are protesting and, and also in a political sense, can you can you talk about what you think that means? Probably you've heard that Bulgaria is uh, like the fastest shrinking or the fastest dying country in the world. We have very low uh, birth rates and a lot of um, out migration. In fact, since according to some estimates, probably conservative estimates, um, since 1989, since the changes. Bulgaria hemorrhaged around 2 million people, and there were 9 million. So this is like, what, one quarter or more of the population. So, But it's great to see that people um, from Bulgaria around the world have not lost ties to, to the country and are still, um, you know, engaged somewhat or affected and want to participate in the political process. Even if it's through the protest, that's that's 
perfectly fine. Well, a lot of Bulgarians have migrated within Europe, especially to the UK. Um, right. And also to other parts of Europe, of course. Um, there seems to be, uh, and, and this is related to the protests happening right now, I understand that there's sort of an informal alliance between the current center-right government in Bulgaria and some of the huge players in the EU. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about this. Um, yeah, you know, when Bulgaria joined the EU in 2007, there was a great hope that the EU institutions will manage to discipline the, um, the ruling elites and their corrupt allies. Well, now, 13 years later, we see that this is not happening. And in fact, the only time the EU used some of its financial leverage against the Bulgarian government was when the socialists were in power. In 2008, there was a big corruption scandal. And they discontinued the flow of, I, I, I don't know which one of these uh, funds that the EU has. And so since then, yeah, since then, in fact, it turned out that uh, EU funds and e the EU membership are beefing up the mafia, the ruling mafia. They're not stopping them. And there has been almost like a moment of, you know, reckoning and, you know, big disappointment on part of the Bulgarian protesters and the larger um, population that the EU is not able to help with this and that it is in our hands to get rid of these elites and these practices and to fix this country so people stop living it, right? And um, as you mentioned, um, this government is a very nice ally to, to the ruling elites in Brussels. In fact, it's not like Orban, you know, Orban has similar politics, but he's, he's more like, like he's striking these, um, these gestures of like, you know, the EU is colonizing us, we don't want blah, 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 even if he's taking the money. But the Bulgarian uh, elites are doing basically the same uh, what Hungary is doing, but they're not so explicitly oppositional to Brussels. So the, the Brussels politicians, they don't mind them, even if it's practically the same regime also in Bulgaria. In terms of the Bulgarian government's position, uh, there's not an oppositional relationship to the most powerful figures in the EU, but they are not adopting the sort of protocols of EU frameworks. They are not explicitly like um, oppositional to them, and they can just play with. I don't. I. I, I don't know how to put it. Um, selectively adopting what you call protocols. Um, and in fact, this this is visible, for example, when uh, the protest, the latest protest erupted, some senior EU figures uh, backed the government and not the protests, like Manfred Weber. Yeah, um, and can you talk about that a little bit more, about the response of the EU to the protests? For what I know, for what I saw, they basically are not explicitly endorsing the protests. They, they want to keep uh, good relations with the ruling party because the ruling party gives them, helps them um, maintain their majority in the European Parliament. So, in 2013, for example, when the socialists were in power for one year again, um, the EU wholeheartedly supported the protests against, they were 
protests back then against this government and the EU was very much endorsing what was happening on the streets. But today they're more like, uh, you know, more cautious. And it's all about who is your ally and friend, you know, in the highest echelons of power and not about principles. You know, we need to understand that the EU is not about principles, human rights and so on. It's just about, you know, power politics and yeah, these are their friends, therefore they will not say anything that hurts their um, relations. So when we talk about the government, uh, there has been illustrations that the government's very connected to the mafia. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, some people have said that basically the government is the mafia. Um, yes. This, this has um, translated to very dangerous circumstances in terms of the corruption around infrastructure. Uh, specifically mm -hmm. roads and bridges uh, were some examples that I read about. You mentioned the water system also. Um, the, yes. the fact that funding that was allocated for these public works was not used, how does that affect Bulgarians? Like I said, everybody is negatively affected in, to the extent that we all use these roads. We all uh, need the water and, and these uh, systems which support everyday life. Um, I mentioned kindergartens, I mentioned hospitals. Bulgaria has the highest rate of co-payments uh, in the EU. Basically you cannot enter a hospital without starting forking out money left and right for things that are supposed to be free. This is also a form of corruption if you ask me. So quality of life suffers which fuels this vicious circle of you know more people leaving the country giving up on it. Thank you for outlining that. Uh, from what I understand, I mean, from what you've described and other readings, um, it seems that the social and economic violence uh, that people have been protesting in, in Bulgaria really is an extreme illustration of neoliberalism uh, as, as, mm -hmm. as taking place within the EU. I'm wondering if you could talk about what's happening in that framework. Um, yeah, it's, it is an extreme form of neoliberalism to the extent that uh, as an ideology, neoliberalism is uh, basically the implementation of market relations in virtually every sphere of life, market relations and competition. Yeah, so everything's for sale, including political office. That's what people call um, in my country and others corruption as a form of, and some, often, oftentimes they mean by this, um, deficient type of capitalism, capitalism, which is not, you know, what we expected to happen uh, in '89, uh, but some, f but some form of, you know, a deficient one, not real, not authentic one, um, as in fact uh, the most extreme and the clearest uh, type of capitalism that exists. You know, minimum welfare state or no welfare state, no regulation, um, everything for sale, everything has a price. That's, that's what it is. That was a conversation with Jana Tonova, who is a Bulgarian sociologist and writer. Uh, she's been writing um, for various publications and recently wrote a piece uh, for Al Jazeera English that really gives some context and background to the ongoing protest movement in Bulgaria. 
Um, over the last two months, there's been significant protests in Bulgaria for social justice uh, and against economic inequality and corruption. Uh, these protests, of course, taking place in the uh, poorest country of the European Union by far, Bulgaria bordering the tip of Europe, basically the southeastern corner bordering Turkey and Greece um, and Macedonia. So uh, I thought it would be interesting to look at what has been happening in Bulgaria because it's so far from the mainstream news, but there has been significant protests and also significant police repression. Um, you know, the Balkans are important to me. Um, this is, you know, part of my roots and part of my identity. Um, so it's always important to try to figure out what's happening there. And also, most importantly, what social movements are doing. Um, so, yeah, uh, thank you again to Jana for being on the show. This is the Free City Radio podcast. Um, I'm Stefan Christoph. I'm here in Montreal. Um, I wanted to um, now go to a, a little bit of audio. Uh, this is uh, from a poetry reading that happened uh, here in Montreal last uh, week. It was a community arts benefit uh, to support communities in Beirut that have been impacted by the explosion last month. Um, I invited three uh, local uh, poets to read, writers, um, to read poetry. Um, and I was really happy that Rawi Haj, uh, who is an author, he wrote the book Cockroach and De Niro's Game, read uh, at this event. We were raising money for uh, friends in Beirut who have been doing uh, grassroots relief efforts um, to support low-income people who were impacted by the explosion in the port of Beirut last month. Um, so Rawi read a piece, uh, a, a poem by the poet Pablo Neruda, of course, uh, the Chilean uh, socialist poet, um, very important figure in not only Latin American literary history, but global literary history and global social movements. So here's Rawi reading from uh, Pablo Neruda. In the middle of the street, I wonder, where is the city? It's gone, has not come back. Perhaps this one is the same. It has houses, it has walls, but I can't find it. It isn't a matter of people, Pedro or Juan, nor of that woman, nor of that three. Now the city has buried itself, has strumbled somewhere underground, and this is another time, not the same at all, taking on the same lines of streets, assuming the same house numbers. Time then does exist. I realized it. I know it exists, but I cannot understand how that city which had worn blood, which had sky enough for all, and whose memorning smile spread like a basket full of plums, the houses with all, with a forest smell, wood newly cut at dawn with a saw, the city that always sang at the water's edge, of sawmill in the mountains, all that was yours and mine, of the city and its hilarity, wrapped itself up in love secretly and let itself fall into forgetfulness. Now, 
where it once was, there are other lives, a different way of being, another hardness. All is well enough, but why does it not exist? Why is it all, why is it old aroma now sleep? Why did all those bells fall still? And why did the wooden tower say goodbye? Perhaps the city fell away in me, house by house. It's where house eroded by the slow damp by passing time. Perhaps it was I who lost the blue of the pharmacy, the stored up wheat, the horseshoe that hung in the harness store and those souls who were always searching as though in a well of dark water. Then what am I coming to? What have I come to? That woman I loved once among the plums in the stunning summer, clear, clear as an axe blade catching the moon. She was the eyes that bite like acid into the metal of helplessness. She went away, went away without leaving, without changing house or country, want of her own will, trembling through times backwards and did not fall into mine when she opened possibly those arms which escaped my body and she was calling perhaps at the distance of so many years while I, in another corner of the planet, was drowning in the distance of my age. I will ask leave of myself to enter, to return to the missing city. Inside myself, I should find the absent one, that smell from the lumber yard, perhaps the weed that ripples on the slopes. Still goes on growing, but only with me. And it's in myself I must travel to find that woman. The rain bore off, and there is no other way. Nothing can last in any other way. I am the one who must attend these, those trees and somewhere or other decide where the trees should be planted all over again. Okay, thank you very much. That was poet Rawi Haj uh, reading from the Chilean author and poet and activist Pablo Neruda here in Montreal last week at a community arts benefit for Beirut that took place uh, here in the city. Um, this is Free City Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, thanks for being with us. I wanted to now go to a piece of music. Um, this is a piece of music led by guitarist and musician Nick Kuffer. Um, and he's playing here with Christina Koropecki and Eric Craven. This piece is called Legs in Migration. It was performed live at uh, La Sala Rosa Concert Hall in Montreal, of course, before the pandemic. Thank you. 
That was a piece of music by Nick Kuffer uh, uh, on guitar and loops, joined by Eric Craven on percussion and Christina Korapeki on uh, cello. Uh, this is Free City Radio Podcast. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, next on the show, um, I wanted to um, address an issue that has been in the news, um, but I also felt it was important to have a longer conversation with somebody from the diaspora of the Uyghur community here in Montreal. Uh, of course, uh, the Uyghur community of southwestern China has been facing imprisonment without trial, forced labor camps, um, different Uyghurs globally uh, representing uh, the Uyghur diaspora have talked about a genocide, a cultural genocide. Also, um, there is a huge push to try to um, legally move forward in terms of taking the Chinese state to an international court of justice uh, and some sort of procedure to give voice to the experiences of Uyghur people. Um, so given that I, I wasn't totally... Um, informed in detail about the situation facing the Uyghur people, although I'd seen some mainstream media reporting, I thought it would be important to sit down and talk with a member of the Uyghur diaspora. So I spoke with Hayum Masimov, uh, who I met through my friend Samir Zuberi, uh, who's been campaigning uh, for the rights of Uyghur people for many years. And um, we had a conversation here in Montreal in the southwest of the city last week. Um, it was really good to talk with Hayum and hear his perspective. And I just wanted to share what he has to say and let it speak for itself. So here's Hayum Masimov. I'd like to make a, a remark here. If it is not thousands we're talking about who are being held in uh, these concentration camps, UN estimates put then more than 1 million I have seen reports by Pentagon uh, putting the estimates up to 3 million, uh, but the community members uh, in exile, we do estimate the numbers to be at least 4 to 5 million. So we're not talking about thousands, we talk about millions who are held in concentration camps for no reason but because of their origin. So just to get a picture, I mean... This has been widely discussed in the Western press, uh, especially the New York Times has investigated these camps. Um, I really wanted to hear from you about the the system, but also the the role that there there's a relationship between Western corporations and also corporations within China and the labor of these these. Uh, well, it's it's hard to call people who are held against their will without trial prisoners, but people who are jailed without process. Um, can you can you give a bit of a picture um, as to that context? Thank you. Uh, what is called concentration camps uh, is qualified as re-educational uh, centers by Chinese government. At the beginning. Uh, they were denying even the existence of these camps, yes. but then uh, they reversed the story and it became re-educational centers. The existence of these centers came out in early 2015s, 2016s in our region, but prior to that, the former uh, party chief of uh, Uyghur region, uh, who was transferred from Tibet, he implemented more or less the same program in Tibet itself. 
So there were uh, evidence that uh, Tibetans were held up on in these camps. So basically, what are these camps? These are camps where you're holding up people of one ethnicity, and you try to brainwash them. People uh, whom I talked to and who've been released, there are not many, but there are. Uh, those people who have uh, dual citizenship with different countries uh, and this is the reason why they were released uh, they all tell the same story it's political indoctrination it's cruelty, torture, police brutality beating, uh, gang raping uh, torturing and uh, you know extraction of uh, false confessions uh, you know, like uh, I have, uh, I I belong to this organization. I was planning to do this, and I'm planning to do that. Everything in written, and the uh, detainees they forced to sign these confessions. So there's not any legal process around this. Uh, well, uh, there is no legality of, for the for holding such uh, even these re-education camps, even by Chinese uh, law. I mean, there is not law which says, you know, these centers uh, should function or should exist mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's a break, uh, not only uh, all international standards, but mm-hmm. it is uh, clear evidence of the break of the Chinese law itself. Yes. You know, uh, when uh, international experts were sending requests to explain uh, Chinese counterparts, can you prove us or show us any Chinese uh, law or reference to it which uh, you know justifies the existence of these camps or so-called re-educational centers, there was no reply from Chinese side. So it is illegal from the to begin with. Mm-hmm. And people who detain, there is a tricky part. You know, uh, I would rather not to use term detain yeah. because detention entails some kind of uh, evidence, court hearings. These people are simply kidnapped. They're taken from the street, from the house, from the workplace, and they sent straight into these centers where they undergo a process of uh, so-called uh, indoctrination and political re-education. It is very reminiscent of Mao Zedong area in 1960s and 50s. Uh, in my mind and in the mind of the many politi- uh, uh, international known uh, experts, this is a genocide. I mean, clear evidence exists, and uh, we have been advocating in Canada for a long time, and we believe this is a time now that Canadian public and Canadian government acknowledges the existence of genocide. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the 50s and 60s. What's the link? Sorry, just explain that. Well, uh, during this time, uh, there was a social moves uh, movement uh, orchestrated by communist uh, Chinese uh, regime, by Mao Zedong, who was a chairman, chairperson at that time, so-called campaign again leftist, campaign again uh, rightist, uh, 1,000 flowers bloom, cultural revolution. Uh, so it is very reminiscent. People were sending to these gulags uh, where we, they were forced to undergo this uh, political indoctrination and uh, brainwashing. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the current uh, chairman of uh, CCP, uh, President Xi, his family was a victim of these camps. You know, his father was sent out to these uh, camps, and the President Xi himself was uh, he raised in this farm, tending after the uh, you know porcine, uh, you know tending the folk, you know the after animals. 
so it is very uh, you know contradictory that the same person who suffered so much under the previous communist um, you know leaders now is implementing even the more worse a cruel uh, you know program uh, in the region so in terms of understanding the history um thank you for that context i mean um often uh human rights abuses on a systemic level when it comes to the uh situation uh facing cultural minorities is justified in the context of quote unquote progress um and and we've seen similar historical patterns through colonization in the americas um in regards to indigenous people um when we were talking before i started recording you made some sort of parallel between the colonization of these territories and how indigenous people were treated and what's happening in um southwestern china um or your traditional lands the traditional territories of the uighur people um is that link important in terms of understanding what's taking place there are some parallels but i'd like to clarify one point uighur yeah. people are not the minority in their own land yes what we refer as east turkestan we are turkic speaking muslim people we have had rich history of our own independent states and culture and heritage uh, contributed a lot uh, to the world heritage the music uh, literature you know science etc etc so we are a nation which yes. was occupied by chinese communists in 1949 same in line with uh, mongolians or tibetans so uh, to say that we are minority it might be a, a bit uh, confusing for audience so i'd like to make point on Thank that uh, secondly yes uh, when we talk with chinese officials you know the, when there is a chance in private and we ask you know what you're doing is wrong and you know what you're doing is wrong they do quietly confess yes we're doing it and it might not be a right thing to do in terms of you know uh, present policies but this is a history and this is a reality as soon as you will become assimilated it will be you will be better off as a nation you know so uh, total assimilation signification that's the final goal of these uh you know uh, regime implementers and it, as an argument they push forward this um this um, this thesis saying you know look at americans you look at the canadians they did the same with native americans you know just admit you will be better off if you will become assimilated if you will be so called cultural and you will be poor, uh, integrated in the uh, you know majority han chinese culture and uh, uh, what i call oikumena you know a greek term for uh, civilization <clears throat> and uh, you know just face it this is a reality and in my understanding uh, it comes from the ideological indoctrination because chinese communists they do believe in communism and communism advocates for darwinism and darwinism is the main concept is a survival of the fittest and uh, per se it implies that there is no morality the strongest will survive and will dominate the whole uh, uh, jungle the whole you know world so that's uh, that's a, a departing point of all these uh, atrocities we seeing in the region and uh, 
China nowadays, or I would say Chinese government, is so confident they can handle this situation by wiping out, destroying the culture. And so what they're doing actually, social engineering, they're rebranding the mindset of people and they're detaching, separating children from, the, uh, from, the, from their parents. They ship out the parents to work in the slave factories and they raise children as Chinese and they do coerce uh, Uyghur women to marry ethnic Chinese. Uh, the ban on language, uh, on religious practices, on culture, and even uh, cemeteries nowadays, they are raised to the ground. So to erase any uh, cultural um, ethnic identification. The mosques, which are like 500, 600 years old, they all raised to the ground. The ancient city of Kashgar, where Marco Polo used to venture and marvel, it's been destroyed in 2009. It's been bulldozed. Uh, the Quran, you know, Quran, the uh, holy books for Muslims, they've been burned in thousands and thousands, you know. And yet there is a big uh, deafening silence by large and no reaction by international community, which is very heartbreaking. Hayum, uh, you talk about, I just want to bring up this point because I think there's some debate within the left in North America around, you know, you mentioned communism as a survival of the fittest. Some people argue that some parts of communism are about equality between people. This is not the experience in terms of the way communism has been implemented by the Chinese state in relation to the Uyghur people. That's obviously not your experience and not your experience now. Um, what do you say to people who defend the Chinese state's actions as a counterbalance to um, Western uh, traditionally colonial interests? How do you respond to that? Well, this is a question of ideological stand. I believe that uh, communism, at least for Uyghurs, uh, it was uh, manifested as a radical, uh, terrorizing, uh, extreme ideology. Uh, and uh, communists came to our land, they took our possessions, they killed people, they killed the elite, uh, all uh, people um, savant, intellectuals, clerics, you know, etc., etc. So in case, in case of Uyghur people and other Turkic-speaking uh, natives of this land, Communism had 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 have had very bad, um, very negative, devastating effect. Like within the span of two generations, we uh, we became uh, you know uh, so marginalized, so depo- uh, in, like impoverished, uh, and so uh, like I cannot even find the terms to describe yes, yes. it. Uh, I would say marginalized on in our own homeland. We have became a second-class citizens. All in the name of what? Of communism? So what is the kind? What kind of communism it is? You know, the, the invaders come and they uh, they rape your 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 sisters and mothers. They take your children from your parents. They send you into prison. You know, uh, in practical terms, what we have seen, this is not what is manifested in theory. So I would suggest those leftists who still advocate for communism just to go there and leave and experience themselves firsthand what is communism is. You know, some people might argue, you know, communism was ended in 1991 with the collapse of Soviet Union. 
but this is still the case. I mean, ask Venezuelans, ask Cubans, ask North Koreans, ask uh, Chinese people, ask Uyghurs what communism means for them. And I believe their reflection will much uh, will differ so much from the experiences uh, Westerners got uh, by reading books. Yeah. So it's one thing to read the book and to fantasize and idealize uh, utopian society where is a distribution of wealth on equal terms. There is a liberté, fraternité, égalité. And one thing, to leave it, to leave this uh, hell on earth. And I believe the very crucial element is, is judgment day. You know, it's this belief of afterwards, that after material life was finished, people should face some judgment. And in case of Chinese communists, there is no moral constraints and that justifies the extreme brutality they implement and they act right now. Because if uh, party official uh, security personnel do not believe in God, do not believe in existence of judgment and the punishment or the reward, you know, they just benefit uh, from a daily life and they want to, to get um, as, mu as much as they can. So there are no moral constraints to hold someone from acting in this uh, violent way, in this immoral, immoral way. Uh, that's my uh, reasoning and my uh, explanation of yeah. the facts Thanks from what, what, how I see it. Um, so I want to look at what's happening right now. Thank you for sharing your thoughts about this context. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the labor and the um, camps. Can you talk a bit more about what's going on in terms of people who are detained or people who have been removed from their communities and forced into these prisons? Um, I would note for people to look through the reporting that Human Rights Watch has done about this, about the Uyghur context, just as a side note. But um, can you talk a bit about what's happening in terms of labor and also the corporations involved? I'd like to put uh, some figures. So rather uh, on providing my opinion, my personal opinion, I would rather uh, fact-base my claims on the figures. Yes. Uh, the figures are 95%, uh, almost 90% of cotton produced in China comes from Uyghur land. Uh, Chinese industry and Chinese textile consists of 25% in global market. That's the value or the share of the uh, global industry and textile apparel. In Canada, uh, there are many companies, uh, I would say 82%, which were named by Australian think tank in the, in the latest research, which import uh, cotton from uh, Uyghur land, from China, into North American markets. Uh, we, to begin with, let's say Adidas, Reebok, H&M, Walmart, Costco, etc., etc. All these names, all these brands, they do use cotton and cotton yarn produced in our region. Okay. It is almost certain that this uh, cotton, which comes from China and which comes from our region, been forced, uh, been been collected by forced labor. Uh, when well, what do I mean by forced labor? People who work for free, for no wages. They, they collect this cotton, they process it, and uh, they uh, sew and they uh, do manufacturing textile. Uh, all these brand names which end up fi uh, eventually on the market in, the, in North America. 
So when Canadians argue, oh, it's so far away, it does not affect me, you know, it's very sad, but you know, this is like, I have nothing to do with it. I think this is a false uh, mm -hmm. argument and a weak defense because whenever we buy products made by tainted uh, slave labor, we are partially responsible mm -hmm. because by buying these products, we do encourage investments and uh, exportation of these products. And we actually feeding this system, mm -hmm. which profit on free slave labor. And, uh, you know, this is very important uh, issue that I would like to raise that the public awareness should exist and uh, I believe Canada as a country should follow the steps of U US which has recently banned all importation of cotton coming from China in apparel industry so this is very very important okay. point yeah. and I can go on, on yeah, and on but uh, time is a constraint so yeah. I will just stop here maybe you have questions I will uh, try to explain thank more you. Well, I guess, yeah, thank you so much. Um, I would just ask maybe, um, you mentioned the involvement of the uh, apparel industry and, and corporations, I mean, you mentioned H&M, you mentioned Costco, Walmart. Um, we talked earlier about the resources in the land and rare, uh, rare materials, uh, rare elements um, that are very important for the production of electronic goods. And I was wondering if you could quickly just highlight a few points about this issue. And I mean, obviously, we know Apple, for example, uh, manufactures a lot of its products uh, within the framework of, of Chinese production. So if you could highlight, uh, Hayum, a few of those points. Uh, well, I'd like to raise this issue and that, you know, um, issue about corporate, uh, corporate responsibility. I mean, it's one thing to declare uh, good statements and another is to act. Um, I believe many Western companies who operate in our region, they do benefit indirectly or directly from the slave labor. Uh, just to mention, let's say Volkswagen, they have car manufacturing plant in Urumqi, the capital of Uyghurland. And, uh, you know, just a few miles, uh, you know, they surrounded by these concentration camps. So any provenance of these uh, manufactured cars from this plant is very dubious. We do suspect, and it's very highly, highly likely, that partially or in integral part of manufacturing uh, was involved uh, using slave labor. Mm -hmm. uh, so just one example, yes, uh, Volkswagen. Apple as well, you yeah. know. Uh, rare earth materials which are extracted and we end up using in our cell phones uh, if it's coming like let's say mar brand marks like Huawei they all been uh, you know extracted in Tibet or in our region so there is a like a predatory exp uh, exploitation of the mm -hmm. environment a big big catastrophe yeah. but besides of this uh, factor there is also human dimension People uh, used to work, I mean, they do work for 10-12 hours for no salary. Yeah. Uh, they just being fat and they live in squalid uh, conditions. And uh, for what? For Canadian consumers' uh, ability to buy a t-shirt for the price of a coffee. I mean, you can make comparison and ask yourself, how come it's so cheap? How come? 
is that so you know uh, and and in, in reverse let's say local industries in Canada North America they dying off because you know of this uh, government sponsored government sponsored exportation dominance by China We have become so dependent on Chinese imports that we cannot comprehend our daily life without buying stuff from uh, cheap stuff from Dollarama, uh, Walmart, Costco, etc. So the current uh, ep- ep- uh, ep- epidemic, the pandemic, you know, of uh, Wuhan virus, I think it should serve us as a waking up fun- uh, waking up call. You know, we should realize whom we are dealing with. And when we do business deals and we when we trade, we should prior prioritize human rights issue as well. You know this is very important, and a big crucial paramount part of it is public awareness. So don't buy stuff made in China, don't buy uh, you know tainted uh, slave labor products, and uh, you know spread the word. You know, yeah. and boycott. Uh, this is the right approach, I believe. And in in conjunction with this, our government should be a leader and and show some leadership and sa- show some courage. And uh, you know, and maybe uh, you know, this is a debate right now in the Parliament of Canada whether to adopt resolution recognizing Uyghur genocide. I believe this is the right way of of doing it, and we are in the right direction. So recognition, the existence of Uyghur genocide, will lead to further steps. Hayum, thank you for speaking with us today. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, uh, I wish I can go and uh, explain more, but uh, please visit our website. Uh, you know, of the World Uyghur Congress. World Uyghur Congress. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, Send us your inquiries, and uh, if you wish to diaspora members to come and testify in person, we can arrange that, or through uh, webinars, seminars. Uh, we are a small, tiny community in Canada, numbering maybe two uh, thousand people all across Canada. Yet we do our best to raise public awareness mm-hmm. and to do uh, lobbying after the Canadian government. Because what is happening in our region, this is not unique and limited to us. What is happening now, it's been transferred now to Hong Kong. It's coming for Taiwan. So unless this growth of Chinese imperialism stopped, checked, we will see more troubles on the horizon. Thank you, Hayun. Yeah, you're welcome. That was a conversation with Hayum Masimov, who is a human rights advocate within the Uyghur diaspora. I thought it would be important to share his perspective, his point of view, on the struggle uh, for the rights of the Uyghur people that's taking place globally. And so, thank you, Hayum, for joining Free City Radio. This has been the 13th edition of Free City Radio podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. I try to uh, keep this podcast up. It was started during the pandemic. I've been working and organizing on a lot of different issues here in the city and uh, working hard on that. Um, so uh, I am going to be stepping up the podcast um, in the next weeks. On Wednesdays, you'll hear it. Um, and thanks for being with us. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating if you like it. 
Um, if you have any ideas or if there's any music you're working on you'd like played, uh, I'd be happy to consider it. Uh, also, if you want to send any feedback, my email is stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Find Free City Radio on social media. Um, we're going to go out with a piece that I worked on with my brother from our album Macedonians. Uh, it's called Mountains at Night. Miss my brother. Uh, he lives in the western area, in the west coast, and I haven't seen him for a long time. So this is us exploring some musical tones. Um, and thanks for being with us on Free City Radio. <laughs>